Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, What Lost Looks Like. It's based upon the lectionary readings for March 31st, 2019. There was a man who had two sons. So begins one of Jesus' best-known stories about love and lostness, the parable of the prodigal son. I was a little girl in Sunday school when I first learned about the boy who ran, a boy who stayed, and the dad who threw the big party. I liked the story very much, especially the details about the pigs and the party. Charlotte's Web was my favorite novel at the time, and what kid doesn't love a big celebration? But as the years went by and I heard the parable over and over again, it began to lose its power. The younger son's selfish greed, the older son's arrogant fury, the patient father's extravagant love. All the story's meaning started to go in one ear and right out the other. As Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, the parable became limp from too much handling. In many ways, I'm still struggling with this limpness. A few years ago, I tried to remedy it by writing imaginary letters to the two sons in the parable. My hope was to make the brothers real and relevant again, and to somehow find my own story mirrored in theirs. When I read over those letters this week, they still felt like the truest responses I can offer right now to Jesus' famous parable. So here are the two letters I wrote about the shapes and forms of lostness. Here's what I wish I could say to the boys whose father ached to bring them home. To the boy who ran, I begin with you because you are the strangest and least accessible to me, impetuous, careless, demanding, so selfish you take my breath away. On the face of things you and I have little in common, I have never run away or squandered an inheritance or given myself over to dissolute living. But neither have I felt the ardent, tear-soaked embrace of a lovesick father, human or divine, welcoming me home. Maybe this is why I dislike you. Am I envious because God is generous? Am I hurt because a father's love is a wild, unfettered thing, unpredictable and unfair? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Here's what I'd like to know. Was your penitence genuine? Did you mean that pious speech you composed in the pigsty, or were you just a clever talker, well-versed in your father's soft spots? Did you feel bad about your adventure, or just bad that it failed dramatically? Here's the other thing I'd like to know. Did you get your act together once the party was over and the fatted calf was eaten? Did you get up early the next morning and pull your weight in the fields? Did you apologize to your brother, take care of your father, make peace with the villagers you scandalized? Did you understand in your heart that really there's no such thing as going home, not in any simple way? Did you get that everything, everything would have to change? Here's what I really need to know. What is this bitter root in me that needs a guarantee? that wants to make sure you understood just how much fear, destruction, and sorrow you caused before I let you off the hook? Why do I need to withhold the forgiveness that alone might restore you? What will I gain if you bleed repentance first? I know this is a problem, my spite, my withholding. Everything in me accuses you of having no empathy, of not giving a damn about how you ripped your father's heart out of his chest, but the truth is I'm struggling pretty hard to empathize with you. So I'm digging down, trying extra hard to find the tender places where you really live. Who are you beneath the labels, beneath prodigal, beneath selfish, beneath sinner? Dying of hunger. That's how your story describes your final days in that far-off country. When your costly adventure was over, when your funds ran dry, when your so-called friends abandoned you. There among the pigs, covered in filth, you finally realized who and what you were. Dying of hunger. May I give you a new label? a new name, one I can relate to. Aren't you, at the very core, the hungry one? 
It was hunger, wasn't it, that first lured you away from a good life and a good father? A gluttonous hunger, maybe, but hunger still. For freedom, self-expression, novelty, something in you, something wild and insistent, needed feeding. But here's a thing that knocks the breath out of me. Your father, in his vast unorthodox wisdom, understood. He didn't hold you back. He didn't decide what your journey should look like. He let you go. What did he know that I refused to know? That you couldn't return home without leaving first? That you couldn't taste resurrection without dying? That maybe lostness is part of the deal, the prelude to the most magnificent finding? Can it be that I too need to know such hunger, know it on the tongue, in the gut, like a fire in my bones, before I can savor the feast? The father understood. What a remarkable thing that is, his deep and patient comprehension of how life and desire actually work. He respected the hunger that pulled you away. He knew a wiser, sharper hunger would bring you home. Was it admirable, what you did? I don't know, but there is this. Even though it cost you, even though it wounded your family, you honored your hunger. I can't speak to the rightness or wrongness of your decision, but maybe there is something in it that I should attend to, because I usually ignore my hunger. When I can't ignore it, I hide, minimize, and vilify it. Is there a chance my hunger wants to point me to God? Your journey ends in a passionate embrace, unrestrained welcome, overflowing joy. Were you grateful? Were you indebted? Did you try extra hard in later years to earn the feast your father lavished on you, or did you simply rest in his prodigal love, knowing it could never be earned? It seems your father didn't much care. He just wanted to feed and clothe you. There's so little of your experience I can applaud. Despite my best attempts to reconcile my heart with yours, my envy remains. Your father ran to welcome you. He cared for nothing in this world so much as having you safe and snug in his arms. No matter what the preachers say, this is not everyone's visceral experience. To hear we are loved is one thing. To feel ourselves embraced is another. You are fortunate. Do you know that? Something jealous in me wants to make sure you know it. But something broken in me wants to reach you, too, to build bridges between your life and mine. What do you know that I know, too? I know what it's like to hunger, to hunger for life, for depth, for passion, for joy. I know what it's like to imagine an exotic elsewhere, a more perfect nourishment miles away from my father's all-too-familiar table. I know lostness, the lostness of being small and sorry and stupid in a world too big and unwieldy to manipulate or control. I know what it's like to come to myself in the broken, impoverished places I create in my own heart. And I know what it's like to feel shame. Shame that I've disappointed everyone. Shame that I'm damaged goods. Shame that I'll never, ever be enough to earn the love I crave. I still don't like you, but maybe we're not so very different after all. To the boy who stayed. I won't lie, my sympathies lie with you. Your story haunts me and your resentments mirror mine. Whenever I think of you standing appalled outside your father's house, your brother's easy laughter ringing in your ears, I ache inside. I imagine you sore and sweat-stained after a day in the fields, longing to go inside for a shower, a meal, a bed, longing for so many legitimate things, only to be thwarted by a robe, a ring, and a fat calf, not intended for you. Theologians tell me I'm supposed to look at you and see self-righteousness, arrogance, and unholy spite, but I don't. I look at you and see pain. I'm an oldest kid, too. I'm used to being responsible, staying home, and getting things done. By temperament, I'm careful. I like order, and I don't mind work. But I'm a stickler about fairness. I care about fairness a lot. I'm also, to be fair, a seether. I don't confront. I seethe, just like you. 
tell me. How long did the bitterness fester? How many weeks, months, or years did you suffer in silence, mistaking restraint for righteousness? Did your father shrink in your eyes as your anger grew? Did every word he spoke, every request he made, every sigh he sighed grate on your nerves? Did you lie in bed at night and wish you had the courage to leave like your brother did? Or maybe it was another kind of courage you lacked. The courage to cry, to plead, to confess a need so insatiable and so secret it made you burn with shame. What would have happened if you looked your father in the eye and said, Yes, I know that all you have is mine, but it's not enough. I can't fathom why, but your everything is not enough for me. I can't find contentment. I can't make my way to love. Somehow in your very presence, I am lost. I know these are terrifying things to admit to yourself, much less to say aloud. But what if you had said them? What if you had said, something in me is broken? Something in me can't embrace or enjoy what's mine. Something in me doesn't understand the joy that lives in giving myself away. Please help me. Wrap your arms around me. Hold me. I'm full of hatred for myself most of all. Please teach me how to love. The challenge of your story, the challenge that tears at me, is that you have rightness on your side. You are right to call for justice, right to ask why your brother's sins incurred no consequences, right to ask why your own loyalty seems to count for so little. You are right to find your father's version of love a bit much, a bit scandalous, a bit risky, because it is. You've understood the point of your own story better than anyone. Yes, your brother squandered his inheritance. Perhaps by hoarding and withholding, you've also squandered yours. But the real prodigal in the story is your father, is he not? Over the top, undignified, and hair-raising in his love, of course you're right to be appalled. Here's the thing. I don't know why your father never gave you a young goat, or threw you and your friends a spontaneous party. I wish with all my heart he had, it makes me angry that he didn't. Was he waiting for you to ask? Were you, in turn, waiting for him to initiate? I know that mingy self-protective mindset so well. If I have to ask for it, then it doesn't count. Maybe it does. Maybe there is something essential to be learned in the asking. We have to celebrate and rejoice. This is your father's final word to you as you stand out in the cold, your arms crossed, your fists clenched, your heart bleeding. Did you know, dutiful firstborn, did you know you have to celebrate? Did you know the joy is a must in your father's house, that partying is a duty? How astonishing that you lived within arm's reach of your father all these years and never glimpsed the merriment that is at his core. We have to celebrate and rejoice, he insists. But there you stand, lover of justice, 100% right and 100% alone. What will it take for you to lean into celebration as a teacher, to try out mercy as a bomb? Can you believe it? Some lessons can only be learned as you laugh and dance. Some hearts will only be healed at the feast. Here's your vindication, yours and mine. The power in the story is the older child's. It's yours. Your brother is inside. He's done breaking hearts for the time being. Now your father stands in the doorway, waiting for you. Waiting for you to stop being lost. Waiting for you to come home. Waiting for you to comprehend that everything in his arms is still yours. You get to write this ending. What will you do as the music grows sweeter? What will we choose, you and I? For books this week, Dan reviews Tommy Orange's novel, There, There. What does it mean to be a Native American today, after 400 years of depopulation, mass murder, forced assimilation, numerous betrayals, altered histories, and violent stereotypes? More particularly, what does it mean to be an urban Indian in a place like Oakland, where author Tommy Orange was born and raised, and which is the setting for his novel? 
And what does it mean if, like Orange, one of your parents is white, but you are nonetheless an enrolled member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma? What is Indianness? These questions about identity require what Orange calls a polyphonic approach of many different voices. His debut novel, which was a blockbuster success in the summer of 2018, revolves around the stories of a dozen characters whose lives converge in the final pages at the big Oakland powwow. Perhaps there are glimmers of hope, of recovered histories, and a new sense of genuine agency, but most of the stories of these dozen protagonists are profoundly sad. Tony Loneman has fetal alcohol syndrome. His mother is in jail, his father is out of state in New Mexico, and he's been suspended from school numerous times for fighting. Dean Oxendine has applied for a cultural arts grant to collect the stories of urban Indians, but he's worried how the panel of judges will view him. They'll think he's white, but he's only half true and so ineligible. Dean is not recognizably native. He's ambiguously non-white. Over the years, he's been assumed Mexican plenty, been asked if he was Chinese, Korean, Japanese, Salvadoran once, but mostly the question came like this. What are you? Opal Viola Victoria Bear Shield asks her mother, a victim of domestic violence, why do we got names like we do? Her mother explains how the white people renamed Native Americans how, and how you're going to know about the history of your people. Jackie Redfeather laments a staggering number of suicides in Native communities. Edwin Black is a 30-year-old man-boy who struggles with internet addiction. He has 660 Native friends on Facebook and obesity. We are Indians and Native Americans, writes Orange. American Indians and Native American Indians, North American Indians, Natives, NDNs, and Indians, Status Indians and non-status Indians, First Nations Indians, and Indians so Indian we either think about the fact of it every single day or we never think about it at all. We are urban Indians and indigenous Indians, res Indians and Indians from Mexico and Central and South America. We are Alaska Native Indians, Native Hawaiians, and European expatriate Indians, Indians from eight different tribes with quarter blood quantum requirements and so not federally recognized Indians kind of Indians. We are enrolled members of tribes and disenrolled members, ineligible members, and tribal council members. We are full blood, half-breed, quadroon, eighth, sixteenth, thirty-seconds, undoable math, insignificant remainders. In short, Indians trying to forge authentic identities in the dark shadows of a horrific history. For movies this week, Dan reviews Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived. This one-hour documentary by PBS will appeal to sports enthusiasts and baseball buffs, but Ted Williams was much more than a ball player, both for good and ill. He was a cultural phenomenon. It's revealing that the subtitle of the film about the greatest hitter who ever lived is a quotation of Williams about himself. Experts might quibble, but it's probably true. Except for his almost five years of military service as a pilot in World War II and the Korean War, he played his entire career for the Boston Red Sox. Williams was obsessed with hitting, to the exclusion of everything and anyone else in his life. Off the field, his success was far different. He openly hated the media. He infamously refused to tip his cap to his own fans. He loved to swear. He redefined rage and anger. Williams grew up in abject poverty in San Diego, and his parents never saw him play a single game of Major League Baseball. This film draws upon archival game footage and interviews with his daughter Claudia, biographers, sports writers, announcers, baseball players, and even a fishing buddy. Everyone agrees on two things. Williams was an amazing hitter. He also, in his own words, struck out as a father and a husband. To cap off his stormy life, after Williams died, his son and daughter had his body frozen cryonically against his stated desire to be cremated. And finally, for poetry this week, A Better Resurrection by Christina Rossetti. I have no wit, 
no words, no tears. My heart within me like a stone is numbed too much for hopes or fears. Look right, look left, I dwell alone. I lift mine eyes, bedimmed with grief, no everlasting hills I see. My life is in the falling leaf, O Jesus, quicken me. My life is like a faded leaf, my harvest dwindled to a husk. Truly my life is void and brief and tedious in the barren dusk. My life is like a frozen thing, no bud, no greenness can I see. Yet rise it shall, the sap of spring, O Jesus, rise in me. My life is like a broken bowl, a broken bowl that cannot hold one drop of water for my soul, or a cordial in the searching cold, cast in the fire the perished thing, melt and remold it, till it be a royal cup for him, my king. O Jesus, drink of me. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for March 31st, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.